Hello amigos, you're listening to Square Pegs, a podcast for the insatiably curious mind, fascinated by new ideas, experiences and perspectives. I'm your host Sheila Bett. Join me for the adventure of a lifetime as we explore, learn and grow together. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Square Pegs podcast. I am Sheila Bett and this is a second episode of the F Word series, a series in which I debunk myths and misconceptions about feminism and just shed more light on what feminism is all about. This second episode is going to be about the stages of the feminist movement, how it started and what it has evolved into over the years. It's safe to say that feminism has existed in some form or another for as long as the human race has inhabited the earth and for as long as gender has been a prevailing factor in societies. When I was preparing for this episode, my intention was to break down the evolution of feminism as we know it from the beginning to now. Along the way, it became apparent that there's an academically accepted way to speak about the evolution of feminism. The first impression you get when doing online research is that feminism began in the United States of America. And while this could accurately describe the beginnings of the movement to liberate women, call for gender equality, access and opportunity, we would be remiss to imagine that the concept of men and women being equal and deserving of the same rights and opportunities was a novel concept when the Seneca Falls Convention took place in New York in 1848. So why don't we try to start from the very beginning or at least as far back as history books will show? It's an ongoing debate, but most people will agree that feminism existed before the term was coined by French philosopher Charles Fourier back in 1837. Feminisme with an e was his way of using one word to describe women's liberation in a utopian future. He was considered a socialist utopian thinker, and although he found the treatment of women, especially in marriage, among the bourgeoisie circles oppressive and believed that it was wrong for them to be treated as property, according to some, he wouldn't be considered a true feminist today. I say that with quotation marks because feminism is a broad term, and though there are baseline ideas on what feminism is, a lot of ongoing debates exist in the feminist space, debates that might be considered divisive. It was interesting to realize that the term feminism is credited to a man. Before that, women and men who fought for the liberation of women called themselves womanists. Although the beginning of feminism is often traced back to 19th century America and the suffragist movement, feminist sentiment and ideals existed way before that. This is now described as proto-feminism or early feminism. One of the earliest women's marches ever documented took place in 3rd century BCE Rome. Roman women protested in Capitoline Hill against a law that denied them the right to use expensive goods. Decades later, the law was repealed. Plato, the famous philosopher from ancient Greece, is also considered a proto-feminist. He argued for the total political and sexual liberation of women. He believed that women should be part of the highest class and endorsed their ability to rule and fight on behalf of the empire. In the Republic, he said that in an ideal state, women would work alongside their husbands, have access to equal education, and share in all aspects of the state. In the Islamic world back in the 12th century, a Sunni scholar by the name Ibn Asakir supported the idea of women studying and earning the license to teach religious texts. It wasn't a popular idea at the time, and there were men who strongly disagreed with his ideas. But he was not the only one advocating for women to be involved in roles that were typically attributed to the male sex. 
another Islamic philosopher and judge, Ibn Rashid, in a commentary on Plato's The Republic, supported the idea of women contributing to aspects of life beyond the household, which was typical at the time. He was unhappy with the way his society confined women to the roles of mother and wife. I'm sure you've seen the pattern already. And he believed that even though women may be physically weaker than their male counterparts, they were just as capable of participating in warfare and other social duties. Iconic women in Islam like Aisha and Nusaiba bint Ka'ab took part in conquests and even led battles. I must say it wasn't easy to find information on proto-feminism in Africa. When I finally did, it appeared that ancient African communities were either matriarchal or proto-feminist by default. Women occupied positions of leadership in spirituality, law, governance. In some cases, the communities were matrilineal, meaning that kinship was based on the mother or the female line. This could extend to land inheritance and the title one held. There are many women who were revered in ancient and pre-colonial Africa, among them Dahia al-Kahina. Dahia al-Kahina was a warrior and leader of what is now Algeria. At the end of the 7th century, she led the resistance against Arab invaders. Then there was Queen Ahmose Nefertari of 16th century Egypt. She's credited with successfully driving the Hyksos invaders out of Africa and establishing the Kemet monarchy. Nzinga is a national figure of pre-colonial Angola who lived through the late 16th into the middle of the 17th century. She was an exceptional scholar and military strategist who fought for her country until her passing at the age of 81. And then there's Makeda, commonly known as Queen of Sheba and Bilkis in the Quran. She was a powerful female monarch of the ancient world who Ethiopian rulers from Menelik I to Haile Selassie claim ancestry too. These are just a few of the most notable women in African history who played a major role in their society in spite of their gender. There are so many more examples, but that would make this podcast much longer than necessary. And we haven't even gotten to the first wave of feminism. So let's do that. The feminist movement is often viewed as a series of waves based on the time in which they existed and the goals that it was working towards. It is broken down into three waves. Now would also be a good time to mention that feminism as a movement is not a monolith or a single block of ideas and thoughts. It's a lot more nuanced, but the waves make it easier to trace back to where it started and where we are now. The first wave of the feminist movement is centered on women's right to vote, or what is famously described as women's suffrage. American history traces the beginning of first wave feminism to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott. This was back in the late 80s when the abolitionist movement was gaining momentum. These two women had wanted to be part of the anti-slavery convention but were not allowed to enter the building or speak because of their gender. This propelled them to pen the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions based on the Declaration of Independence. The amendments they proposed would allow women civil, social, political and religious rights. They petitioned this Declaration of Sentiments at the Seneca Falls Convention and got quite a few signatures supporting their cause. Their demand for women's rights to vote drew strong resistance, which led to the creation of a movement. Unfortunately, their efforts were derailed by the First World War for about a decade. In fact, it took 70 years for American women to gain the right to vote. 
Sojourner Truth gave a famous speech in the early 1900s titled Ain't I a Woman? Through her speech, she introduced the idea of intersectional feminism to the fight for women's liberation by showing that race and social class also play a part in the rights and privileges afforded to women. Around the same time period, specifically in 1873, New Zealand, a 270-meter-long petition was presented to Parliament. New Zealand became the first self-governing nation to allow women to vote. This move inspired suffragist movements across the globe. During the war, women started working jobs that had opened up when men went off to fight. The war effort also created new jobs, giving women much more independence than they had ever had before. Protests against the war were gaining momentum as well. On the 8th of March 1917, women in Russia took to the streets demanding for bread and peace. This protest ignited the Russian Revolution and led to the overthrowing of the Tsar. 8th of March is now observed annually around the world as the International Women's Day. In a turn of events and with women's newfound independence, the World War I started a wave of women's suffrage. Countries like Canada, Germany, Poland, Austria and the Netherlands allowed women to vote. American women would finally get the right to vote through the 19th Amendment in 1920. Other notable events in the 20s towards women's liberation were the doctors' protests in Egypt against FGM and ABBA women's riots in Nigeria against market taxes and chiefs who were not elected democratically. I wonder why they call these riots as opposed to protests. If you find out, let me know. By the 1840s, women were using their voices around the world to fight for labor rights against oppression and gender-based violence. By 1945, the UN enshrined gender equality into its charter. Moving on to the second wave of feminism. This wave of feminism started in the swinging 60s and lasted through to the 80s. It's said to have been influenced by the invention of the contraceptive pill, as well as the civil rights movement in America. The contraceptive pill gave women the choice to have children when they wanted and also gave them more sexual freedom. Some of the most prominent figures of this era were the likes of Gloria Steinem, who called out double standards in society on the treatment of men and women. This was also a time when feminists fought for abortion rights and the legalization of the contraceptive pill, among other forms of birth control. The wage gap between men and women began to come under question. Second waivers were also very vocal about civil rights, speaking out against the war and racist rhetoric. Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963, is often used to mark the beginning of the second wave of feminism in America. In the book, she questioned gender roles and how women were only offered a life of household duties and motherhood. If this was not interesting to them, they would be made to feel like there was something fundamentally wrong with them. Betty Friedan argued that women's intellectual and creative capacity was stifled by the rigid expectations of who they could be and how they could contribute to society. It was no longer enough for a woman to be happy and satisfied by domestic life alone. She had a right to the same ambitions and opportunities that men did. Her book sold widely and pushed the feminist agenda to the social and cultural sphere once again. However, it's important to note that there were other feminist writers who came before her. The likes of Simone de Beauvoir, a French philosopher and the author of Second Sex, which was published in France 14 years earlier. The slogan associated with second wave feminism is the personal is political. Second wave feminism was also divided into four branches, liberal, radical, social and cultural. Liberal feminists focused on changing the laws. Radical feminists were keen on dismantling patriarchal structures of society. 
while socialist feminists paid attention to economics and oppression of women in the workplace. Cultural feminists concentrated on gender differences and the need to value both men and women's approaches. Some of the major accomplishments of second wave feminism were the legalization of birth control, passing of the equal pay law, and they also drew attention to domestic violence and marital rape. By the 1990s, a new wave was born, third wave feminism. The third wave began with a rift among feminists who disagreed on sex work and sexuality. It's also largely associated with the idea of intersectionality. Third wavers believed that feminism until that point had focused mostly on middle class white women and completely ignored issues affecting minority women. Third wavers believe that factors like race, gender, ethnicity, religion and nationality should be strongly considered when discussing feminism. Previous symbols of male oppression and objectification of women were also starting to emerge and gain popularity among feminists. Some of the women believed in owning their sexuality, that this was empowering and women could be both sexy and smart. The third wave feminists felt that for a long time, women had been portrayed as victims. They wanted to show their strength and power, including how that was embodied in their femininity. We are now said to be in the fourth wave of feminism. This wave mostly plays out on the internet. It's a virtual fight for equality done through hashtags on social media and online campaigns. I see all these waves of feminism as parts of a whole, like with any movement or ideology, it started simple and evolved over time to include diversity of all the women of the world and the specific issues that relate to their culture, geography, economics and other contexts. Feminism is not a monolith or a linear movement. At the end of the day, its primary reason for existing remains to advocate for equal rights and opportunities for men and women. I'll finish with a quote from Gloria Steinem. A feminist is anyone who recognizes the equality and full humanity of women and men. Thanks for coming back and for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something new as I did while doing the research. The third episode and last of this series for now will be about modern day feminism, how far along we've come and what remains to be done. Until next time, I'm Sheila Bett.